Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you this week? I'm good. How are you, Robert? Man, we are still we're still struggling. Uh, you know, we're yeah. moving. Uh, we we the the computer piece of this move has been uh, nothing but a pain, and um, buying computer parts is still hard. Um, but you know, it's okay. We have figured something out. Uh, it is hopefully going to sound about the same to the people who are listening to this. Uh, but Jasmine, I'm sure from the way that you're looking at the, the picture here, it looks crazy. So, um, it's, uh, it is what it is. Uh, and it's going to be good. We're, we're, we're making shows. We're making shows every week and that's what we're here to listen to this week on the show jasmine is going to talk to us a little bit about uh pride month in kentucky of course june is pride month across the united states and i guess the world i don't i don't know i I don't know if they celebrate it other places in the world i'm sure they do but we are going to talk about some some kentucky pride facts uh members of the lgbtq community who have made an impact here in the state of kentucky and i i actually don't know what's going to be in that segment jasmine has hidden it from me so uh it's going to be a surprise to me as it is to everyone listening i am going to talk a little bit about some new stuff that happens this week we do have a few quick hits that i wanted to get to and also the main thing i wanted to talk about was the lexington boundary the development boundary that exists in lexington which was changed recently so i talk a little bit about that in the back half of the show no guests yet again we will get stabilized and we will get people on here to talk about stuff but not quite yet so jasmine with all that said let us know what we need to know about kentucky and pride okay so in 2016 the kentucky lgbtq heritage initiative published the nation's first statewide LGBTQ historic context narrative. Um, And so that's where a lot of what I'm going to be talking about today comes from. So um, Kate Fossil, who's the director of UofL's Ann Braden Institute for Social Justice Research, um, in partnership with the Fairness Campaign, published this whole report on Kentucky's LGBTQ plus history. And the report provides basically like a broad historical view of queer people in Kentucky. And it does focus largely on the 20th century because much queer history is still unknown because many people were closeted and the movement for equality didn't really become super visible until the mid 20th century. Um, Narratives about black queer people and people from other newer immigrant communities are even less known. Um, so a lot of this, you know, doesn't include um, some of those other types of groups. And, you know, we spend we spend a lot of the show talking about the harm uh, that people in our state and our country have done to LGBTQ plus people. Um, and, and we know about a lot of that because we've talked about it here, you know, about um trying to restrict their rights the anti-trans legislation that was filed this session and passed um things like kim davis denying marriage licenses after the supreme court case that allowed gay marriage and and so um we we've talked about a lot of that bad history um but today i just kind of wanted to highlight um some people who were kind of pioneers in queer movements or or people um, who made some kind of impact in Kentucky's queer history. So going 
way back in like the pre-colonial and colonial era, prior to colonization, the first people in Kentucky who people think could have been LGBTQ um, may have been the Cherokee, Shawnee, and Iroquois. And European travelers gave accounts of Native Americans, often men um, who dressed as the opposite gender and were accorded unique status in their communities. There were also frontiers women um, who were known to dress in male attire, but um, this could have also been for protection. Um, so we, we don't know much about that. And then after the Revolutionary War, um, there were two war comrades who settled in Kentucky and actually organized the Republican Club of Danville. And they lived out their lives together on a farm in Warren County. Um, and they were thought to have been gay. And then um, one other earlier one is Mary E. Walker. She was the first female physician in the U.S. Army during the Civil War. And she was known for bending gender norms and defying traditional female dress. Uh, she was married to a man for some time, um, but was known to prefer female companions and was often accused of being a lesbian. And so um, these are some really early accounts that we have, but we don't have a ton of information. Um, so from here, these are people and places that you might have heard of. Um, so at the end of the 19th century, there was bell breezing. And if you lived in Lexington, I don't, I didn't know who bell breezing was until I moved to Lexington. So Robert, do you know about bell breezing? I, I don't, I don't know who this is. So I'm excited to learn. Did you ever go to the bar bells uh, in Lexington? So that became, that became a popular spot after I left town. I think I went there with you a few times, yeah. but uh, that was after I was living here and you were still in Lexington. But so yes, I, I'm aware of that place. Yes. So Belle Breezing was known as a madam who owned brothels in Lexington. Um, her houses were known as the most orderly of disorderly houses. That That's a quote about um, her brothels. And she has a famous one that's on a street called Northeastern Avenue in Lexington. And then also one on Upper Street that is um, near Transy's campus. And I've actually like been to that that house where she had a famous brothel. Um, but I, I mentioned her in this story um, because oral sources have said that Belle Breezing had queer tendencies and that her girls performed sex acts with each other in front of men. Um, and after she died, items from her brothels were auctioned off and many reside now in Lexington's gay bars. But before there were gay bars, there were often meeting places where queer people could meet up for acceptance and companionship. And some of those places were public parks, um, Shilato and Woodland Parks in Lexington and Hogan's Fountain in Cherokee Park. And then Central Park and Louisville were known to be some of those places. So I'm sure you've probably been to all of those places, Robert. I have been to all of those places. Um, yeah, and that, and that makes sense, uh, that, that, and I, and I also, like, appreciate the fact that, like, you know, there's a lot of, like, titillating facts about this or whatever, but also that these are just places where people could go and feel safe, um, beyond just, like, the parts that are, are, uh, you know, interesting stories or, I guess, like, shocking, uh, in, in their, in their value. Yeah, 
think it's interesting that they're public parks and not necessarily like more hidden types of places. Um, yeah, that is really interesting. Uh, I mean, I'm sure that the the way that these gatherings occurred mostly just looked like gatherings of people and were like surreptitious or or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, that's a place that you could you could go and be seen. And also, there's like just safety in terms of like acts of violence probably aren't going to be perpetrated like out in right. the middle of everybody, um, you know, on a random group of people. Um, so, so I guess it, it it does make sense. But it, yeah, and and that's definitely kind of interesting. Of course, it's you know, I guess. Uh, those, and also those are very like urban downtown spaces, all four of those, um, like places where people live and, and are highly, highly populated. So they're not really like far flung either. They're also like kind of in town. Yeah, absolutely. And so by the 1930s, Woodland Park actually held shows where black men would dress in drag and perform. Uh, but the shows are also kind of in the style of minstrel, minstrel shows, shows mm-hmm. which yeah. of course have a deeply racist history um around this same time there were also in the 1930s there were also accounts of kentuckians who were living as a different gender than their sex assigned at birth um and so that is where we we first start to have um some accounts of transgender people in kentucky um and so also around this time you know mid 20th century um the binghams actually uh come into play robert who are the binghams oh we know about the binghams we had a bingham on our show to talk about uh minstrel (laughs) stuff not that long ago uh yes of course barry bingham is the person uh who um presided over the courier journal when it was at its most powerful um, throughout most of the, uh, like, I guess the second half of the 20th century. I don't know exactly when he came into the picture, but of course the Binghams go beyond that. There's a lot of other people who've done a lot of different things. They're rich people in Louisville, uh, but I think the Courier Journal is kind of the thing that they're most known for. Yeah, so Henrietta Bingham, who she was born in 1901. She's the daughter of Robert Worth Bingham, who was a judge. He was once the mayor of Louisville and the Courier journal mogul um but his daughter henrietta was known to be bisexual um and actually underwent psycho analysis to try to cure her so um early forms of like conversion therapy yeah and a book about this written by emily bingham the person we had on our show she wrote a book about henrietta bingham so if you're interested in that person you can definitely check that out yeah, so Henrietta opened Wilderness Road Bookshop in downtown Louisville with Edie Callahan, who was a lesbian. Um, and that kind of became a gathering spot for um, like alternative people in Louisville, gay people, um, but also just other alternative minds in Louisville. That kind of became a hangout spot. And Henrietta Bingham was part of opening that bookshop. Another well-known figure um, in Kentucky's queer history comes from Lexington, um, and his name is Sweet Evening Breeze, or Sweets for short. And Sweets was a black man from Scott County. Um, His name was James Herndon. And his his story growing up is is kind of sad. Um, He was allegedly abandoned at Good Samaritan Hospital in Lexington, and he, he kind of grew up there. Um, And then he worked there as a really young teen uh, where he delivered mail and entertained patients with his ukulele. Um, But 
after you know that hard early life he later lived on prawl street which is like right across from uk's campus um, in the 1940s and he was known for wearing feminine clothing makeup scarves and jewelry and he would often take walks downtown in full drag he was also an active member of a church in lexington um, and left much of his estate to the church and so this this is in the 1940s and so um, this is still, you know, before the civil rights movement, and he was a black man who dressed in drag, but he kind of became a local celebrity who was accepted by a lot of people. Um, he was very close to the UK football team, who was all white at the time, um, and he also allegedly helped overturn a Lexington ordinance that required wearing a certain number of clothing articles associated with one's sex or they would face arrest. Um, and he was instrumental in helping overturn that ordinance. Sounds like a cool guy. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that this is also just illustrative of the idea that like a lot of the hatred towards, you know, people like the LGBT community only starts to rise up once they have even the smallest amount of power. You know, 1940s uh, is long before, um, you know, the gay rights movement arrives. I think Stonewall is still like 20 years from, from happening. Uh, and it, and it does kind of like, it's, you know, just a guy who seems to be um, living in his life and, and, and is accepted by a lot of people. Um, but, but it's, but it's certainly also marginalized in a lot of different ways, lived a really hard life. Um, and, and yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a shame that, that, you know, a lot of the stuff that happened later happened, which I'm sure we're about to get into. Well, I mean, we, we've talked, we talk a lot about things like that. And so, you know, I wanted to focus mostly on people and things like that. Um, but but yeah, it, it was really cool reading about his story. And also the report said that he had like a complicated history with his church, but he remained an active member of it until he died. And so I thought that was also cool to see someone in the 40s who, um, you know, dressed in drag, but was part of this faith community for his whole life. Um, and then something else that he was a part of were womanless weddings. Have you ever heard of that, Robert? No, sounds, uh, I might have been to one before, but uh, I have not uh, <laughs> not heard of it before. So they weren't real weddings. They were allegedly invented by a man in Bardstown, Kentucky, and they were often held as like charity performances. So I don't know. The equivalent of this that I kind of think of is like some kind of like a male pageant or a date auction or something silly like that. But they were basically held as like charity performances where um, men would dress as the bride. And it, it was kind of like an opposites thing. Like they would have um, a tiny man be the groom and then maybe like a much bigger man be the bride and wear a dress um so that's what yeah. they had as charity events yeah um, that makes sense I, I i think i actually saw rudy giuliani do one of those once uh so i mean it certainly does it sounds like something that there's a long history of in the united states which were mostly pretty funny until uh you know we decided that they were a danger to to uh, America. But, you know, yeah, absolutely. Something that there's a long history of, which typically brought joy to people and, and are fun and exciting. Um, and there's no reason really to, to be afraid of them. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. And so Sweets, who we just talked about, he performed as a bride in a lot of those uh, charity wedding events. Um, and he did one with a UK quarterback, which I thought that that was an interesting story as well. Um, so Sweets was in Lexington in the 40s and also around this time, a little bit earlier in the 30s, early gay friendly bars began popping up around Louisville and Lexington. So one of the a couple of those are the Mayfair Bar and the Zebra Lounge in Lexington and the Bow Arts Lounge in the Henry Clay Hotel in Louisville. And the first known lesbian bar in Kentucky was Aunt Nora's, which was on Cane Run Road and PRP. Um, so a lot of, a lot of these places were in kind of like downtown areas, but Aunt Nora's was like, you know, out in the South of Louisville. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the Mayfair in Lexington changed hands many times until it eventually became the bar complex in 1980. And it's still that today. And it's still open. I, one of my first drag shows, um, was a law school charity event and it was at the bar complex. Um, but in 1968, when it was known as the living room, this was the place where Jim Mead and Luke Barlow met. Um, and you may not know their names because they're not the lead names on the lawsuit. But 47 years later, um, the couple sued the governor as part of the 2015 Obergefell versus Hodges lawsuit that legalized same-sex marriage in the United States. Um, so they met at that bar in Lexington. And then the gay liberation wedding of Tracy Knight and Marjorie, Dro Marjorie Jones also took place in the living room in 1970. Um, and we're going to get to them a little bit later. Another sort of famous event that happened there um, when it became the bar complex a 23-year-old named Jeffrey Wasson was arrested as part of a sting operation for solicitation of sodomy. Several men were arrested, but Wasson was the only one to challenge the sodomy law. Um, and, and this is something that kind of began happening as queer people became more visible. There were police raids um, and people charged with crimes for being gay. Um, and so he was part of a group that got arrested and decided to challenge the law. He was represented by Ernesto Scorsoni, who was a gay member of the General Assembly and later a judge, and Carolyn Bratt, who was a professor at the UK Law School. In 1992, um, it, it took some time for that case to work its way through the court system and up to the Supreme Court of Kentucky, uh, but the Supreme Court struck down Kentucky's consensual sodomy laws, which made Kentucky the first state to do so since 1982. Wow. Um, yeah. So the Kentucky case actually brought a new wave of challenges to sodomy laws. And these challenges use much of the legal language and logic from the Wasson case in Kentucky. And of course, the big one was Lawrence, Lawrence versus Texas. Um, yeah which made its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And that was in 2003. And that's when the U.S. Supreme Court found consensual sodomy laws unconstitutional on the same grounds that were argued in the Wasson case, which were um, that it violates equal protection and the right to privacy. Yeah. 
And yeah, it is it is something to know if you people didn't realize that 2003 was Lawrence v. Texas. That's when consensual sodomy was was struck down as uh, unconstitutional or laws against it were struck down. That was when it became legal to be gay in the United States in all states, which is kind of kind of wild. Um, but yeah, uh, it hasn't been that long since then. Yeah. Um, in the 1960s, Lige Clark, who was from Knott County, just outside Hindman, so we have um, an Eastern Kentuckian, he graduated from EKU, and he was part of the group who staged the first openly gay protest, which um, it was actually four years before Stonewall, um, which of course is the famous police raid um, in New York. So... Clark and his partner, Jack Nichols, um, started writing for a gay newspaper in Washington, D.C., and kind of became prominent figures in um, gay journalism outlets. So they were also published in regular newspapers, and they wrote the first post-Stonewall column calling for gay liberation. Unfortunately, Lige Clark's story um, is very tragic. He was murdered while in Mexico with two gay friends when he was only 32 years old. Um, but he he and his community in D.C. He's a Eastern Kentuckian um, who was later in D.C. and in New York. Um, but his community, they, you know, kind of started these visible protests in the 1960s. When I was talking about people who met at the bar that's now the bar complex um, that was once the Mayfair bar and then the living room. Um, I mentioned Tracy Knight and Marjorie Jones. Um, so there's, there's another case from Kentucky um, and it was the first lesbian marriage trial. So Tracy Knight and Marjorie Jones sought a marriage license and when it was denied, they sued for the right to marry. They lost the trial and the Kentucky Supreme Court rejected their appeal. Uh, but their case spurred a movement of other cases in other parts of the country. And it was also kind of the first known political organization event for gay people in Kentucky. So Lyce Clark's protest happened in D.C., um, but this was kind of the first political movement in support of gay people that happened in the state. Um, and that was in 1970. The first Pride March in Kentucky was not until 1987, and it was called the March for Justice. And it was organized by two local lesbians in Louisville, Pam McMichael and Carla Wallace. Um, and Carla Wallace's name might sound familiar because she co-founded the Fairness Campaign in 1991 um, and also helped co-found the organization Showing Up for Rachel racial justice in 2009 yes i definitely have heard of her from that yeah um so due to the work of fairness which carla wallace helped start with ken herndon Louisville passed an anti-discrimination ordinance and was followed by lexington um, henderson which was later repealed and then jefferson county um, and since then several others in 2013 though i wanted to mention um one maybe unexpected place. We, I think we've mentioned this on the show before, but, but Vico, uh, which is an Eastern Kentucky coal town, they became the smallest town in the country to pass a fairness ordinance. ordinance. 
Johnny Cummings was the mayor at the time and was openly gay. And so um, that's kind of a cool little story about Vico. And that actually, I think, was on like Stephen Colbert's show. I remember seeing it on yeah. TV when it happened. We're, we're getting into stuff that I remember when it happened. And I remember the entire campaign as it was happening. Yeah, it's kind of crazy in retrospect as things become history how like all of the weird controversy surrounding it and all of like even the people who are largely supportive that weren't necessarily like oh they're spending too much money to try to organize the small town or whatever like all that kind of falls away and all you're left with is the history and it is really meaningful and it is a really cool story uh and it is like a really neat piece of uh our our shared history that this place um which is tiny i don't even know if it exists anymore it might have been disaffiliated because of the depopulation uh in eastern kentucky um it it its story is really neat and is something that that we can look look at with pride for sure yeah and so i mean that kind of brings us to now um and in 2022 katora heron became the first openly lgbtq member of the house um so i rem- I mentioned Ernesto Scorsoni earlier because I I talked about his involvement in the Wasson case, Um, but he was the first gay member. He was a member of both the House and the Senate, but he was not out to the public then. Um, So Katura Heron was the first openly LGBTQ member in the House. Also elected in 2022 and sworn in this year, Rebecca Blankenship became the first openly trans elected official in the state when she was elected to Berea's school board. Um, And then as of this week, Emma Curtis, who is also a trans woman, is now seeking the Democratic nomination for House District 93, which will be holding a special election due to the death of Lamine Swan. Yeah, uh, that that is uh, those are all people that we admire a lot uh, and we know and think are great and yeah they are making history right in front of our faces um you know um there's still a lot of decisions that need to be made and then is it the 93rd i think that that's the number for that seat let me see Mm -hmm. um but yeah definitely uh we have an opportunity to put a a trans person in the general assembly or at least lexington does um so we'll see we'll see what happens there for sure um but you know rebecca uh played a huge role in this year's general assembly um of course uh was a really tough one for her and for the trans community but um i mean she was there and showed up every day um, trying to do the best for for her community um, and, and really for all of us who deserve to live in a state that that is um, you know better about these things but yeah wow learned a lot there Jasmine uh, thought that's a very very cool very cool thing so uh, you found a lot of this in the the history project or the oral history project at U of L from the um, the Braden Institute or was this just like all over the place that you found all this information most of this did come from that report um, and it's 125 pages long, so there's also so much in it that we couldn't talk about on the show, um, but it, it was all incredibly fascinating. Um, and then some of this more modern stuff, you know, I knew and found from other sources, um, but much, you know, the majority of this information did come from that project, which mm-hmm. I think was incredibly cool. And, you know, we, I, I think more conservative people, um, you know, seem to think that this is like some new that gay people or trans people are some new like woke thing and that, um, you know, we're coming for the kids and and all of these things. And I mean, things things like this project show you that um, LGBTQ plus people have been around for a really long time um, and they're they're an important part of. 
our country's history and also Kentucky's history. And um, there were some of these people who I'd heard of before um, and some of these cases that I've heard of before, but a lot that I hadn't. So I really learned a lot um, and um, just wanted to celebrate some of those people who were important to um, Kentucky's queer history for Pride Month. Absolutely. No, that that's that's absolutely correct. Uh, there, there's been a lot of amazing history in Kentucky and a lot of that I didn't even realize that played a big role in establishing a lot of these larger precedents. Like there was a Kentucky couple in the Obergefell decision uh, the the the, you know, the Kentucky Supreme Court decision led, uh, I mean, the, the reasoning led directly to Lawrence v. Texas. So it's really neat to see um, the role that Kentucky played in a lot of these things. Uh, it, it often goes overlooked. Um, and, but these people are, are important Kentuckians and we deserve to celebrate them. So we're doing that this month for sure. Uh, all right. Jasmine, anything else to say about Pride Month or about all these folks uh, today? Nope, that's it. All right. Well, I'm going to jump to talking a little bit about Lexington's growth boundary. Uh, change of pace for sure. Um, so, Jasmine, a bit of history for you. Did you realize that back in 1958 that Lexington established a growth boundary which prevented development beyond a certain point? Did you know that? I'd heard that, but I didn't know that it was in 1958. Yeah, it's it's very the policy is very old. I mean, these things became a little bit more popular. I think that um, some full, some places out on the West Coast have them, um, but but Lexington established it because um, to protect like farmland, uh, important farmland that is, exists in Fayette County. And really, when you look at a map of Fayette County, it's very apparent where this line is because you see mm-hmm. markers of density just kind of disappear. There's not that many yeah. roads. Um, all of A lot of the, you know, if you look on Google Maps, it turns like green for whatever reason. Uh, but yeah, it's like uh, there, there's just not a lot that exists past that. Um, and this, this policy, as it uh, existed in 1958, has, has been altered a few times, but not that many, and really not since 1996. And then this week, the Lexington Fayette Urban County Government, uh, the council there, agreed to add to, uh, to the growth boundary. They're, they're going to add between 2,700 and 5,000 acres to the growth boundary to allow for additional development beyond where that boundary exists uh, last week. Um, the, the purpose for doing this, according to supporters of the policy, is to spur development, which would increase housing repl- supply and then and then therefore reduce the cost of housing in, in Lexington. Uh, that that's at least the idea that that they're they're putting forward. Um, it, it's really hard, and, and I mean it's in a legitimate way. I'm not trying to be like secretive and say like I actually come down on one side of this or not. It, it is like just really hard to say whether or not increasing the land available for development will actually push down housing costs. Where the land is, what kind of housing would fit well on that type of land, uh, and what type of housing would be available after that policy goes into place, and then also how accessible that housing is to the places where people work and live, transportation, etc. All of those things factor really heavily into whether or not the policy will end up you know, achieving the stated goal. You don't just go from like, we're moving, we're increasing to the, the boundary, the development boundary, to there's cheaper housing. There's a lot of intermediate steps, and a lot of things kind of have to go right before, before that can really happen. When the border was expanded in, in 1996, 5,400 acres were added to the boundary. And as of today, which is, you know, almost was, you know, 33 years later, um, only half of those were actually developed. Half of those are still available for, for development, despite the city of Lexington facing a really significant housing crunch. Uh, so far as I can tell, the median sale price for a single family dwelling has increased by 44% in Lexington since 2018. 
So there's a, the, the cost of housing has gone up everywhere in Kentucky. Uh, Lexington has faced a significant increase in housing. Um, and, and there is land available for development that just hasn't been developed yet. Um, so you can see right there how just increasing the land that's available doesn't nece- necessarily immediately equate to you know, lower housing costs. The vote to expand was not that close. It was 10 to 3 in favor. The three council members who voted against the expansion were Dan Wu, Hannah LaGreese, and David Sevigny. Um, the issue with the expansion that they stated was a lack of a plan at the outset for what to do after the growth was approved. Um, and, you know, I find that I find that kind of compelling. The city is giving up an asset. Uh, they have this undeveloped land. It exists. It's undeveloped. Um, and, and it is there. That is something that the city has that they can that that is something that's to their credit. And they're giving it up um, for something. They're giving it up in the hopes that it will reduce housing costs. It might be worth it. But I think having a full plan in place for how to trade that undeveloped land for affordable housing would make sense for something that you should do before you put the policy in place. So, so I find the opposition compelling, um, but at the same time, I also know it's really hard to, to get this stuff through the council, and, and as things get moving, if you stop them, it's hard to get them started again. So you know, if you want to do something like this, um, that might be your only opportunity. The plan's main advocate is Councilmember Preston Worley, who originally p- proposed that land between Athens, Boonesboro Road, and I-64 be opened. The eventual legislation that was passed puts the plan in the hands of the Lexington Planning Commission. So that commission is actually the people that are going to approve where the acres are that get opened up. But the original plan was for Athens, uh, Athens Boonesboro Road out to I-64, but the, the council cannot make that decision necessarily under the law that was passed. But that, that's the original plan, and we'll see how, um, how closely the commission hews to the original plan that was put forth by the commission. Or by the council. I will say that the, the, the planning commission was opposed to expanding the border. Um, the, the planning commission has until December 1st, 2024, so quite a bit of time to come up with a plan. So it will be a while probably until we know where the expansion will go towards. So just like in why I'm talking about this, like this boundary expanding, Lexington expanding the boundary is something that doesn't happen that often. And it's a big deal that the city took this step. Housing as an issue is super serious. It's it's maybe the most important issue facing the state and the country right now, and it's a big, big issue in Lexington. And expanding the supply of housing, in my opinion, is the most straightforward way to deal with the issue. I, I agree with that. Not everybody does. It's you know it's something that gets talked about a lot in, in people that are housing advocates as to you know the, the the role of expanding the housing stock. But to me, I think expanding the housing stock is almost always a good idea. But I have like some questions and some mix, misgivings about like how this plan equates to increasing the housing supply. It's just expanding the, the growth boundary and the plan really necessarily isn't necessarily in place to, to, to do this development that will lead to lower housing costs. But we'll see. Um, I certainly hope it pays off for them, uh, but, but it is something that's yet to be seen. All that said, Jasmine, what do you think about the uh, urban uh, boundary and, and uh, the expansion that, that was approved this week? Yeah, I tried to follow a little bit of this um, on Twitter from Adrian Paul Bryant, who we had on our Civic Lex show. And at, the votes seemed interesting to me, and there were a lot of amendments proposed um, and the, the breakdown of, of council people and their ideologies like kind of seemed 
interesting um, yeah. to me, and and I I felt like um, I didn't really know enough to about it, know enough about it to understand exactly what was going on though. Um, but I, I think just in a broad sense, it, it sounds like a good idea because I know um, housing in Lexington has become really difficult um, for people. But I I think you're right that it would make a lot of sense to have a plan before passing something like that. You know, I think this is something that lawmaking bodies do quite a bit. We, we pass yeah. some kind of bill um, that does something pretty big without having a plan for how it's going to be accomplished. Mm -hmm. um, and so that definitely makes sense to me. And, and I don't know, I guess it seems like it could be a good thing, but it, it's going to be really hard to see. And it seems like it'll be years before we actually see actual development yeah. in the expanded boundary. Yeah, it, it will be. And it's not going to solve this problem next year. It's not going to solve this problem probably in the next five years. There are other ways to solve it, right? You Really, we need to add density. Um, a lot of like places that have, you know, eight or 10 houses probably need to have like towers or, you know, things that mm -hmm. are eight to 10 stories tall with, you know, a hundred units in it or something like that. Like that's the real way to improve. But of course, just like expanding places uh, where single families, people who want to live in a single family dwelling, maybe putting it further out. So there's more of those that exist to make the opportunity to build these kind of towers possible. Like, you know, there's a lot of like nuance to this. And I think that gets to the legislative battle that occurred there where it seemed like a lot of people had a lot of misgivings, but at the end of the day, they didn't want to stand in the way of, of increasing the housing stock by expanding the boundary. Uh, and it of course passed by overwhelming margin, even though maybe not everybody was like super thrilled to vote for it. So, you know, that type of stuff happens in nearly every legislative battle. So, you know, we'll be paying attention to this. Uh, we always do like, this is a big issue in Lexington and civic Lex is on top of it for sure. So we will be uh, paying attention to what they have to say. All right. Uh, three quick hits before we get out of here. The first is that Churchill Downs announced that they would run the rest of their spring meet at Ellis Park in Henderson. Ellis Park is owned by Churchill Downs. The closer, the closure of Churchill is the result of the death of 12 horses at the track in a little more than a month. The federal government passed a law during the Biden administration, I think it was like either last year or the year before, to address uh, deaths at horse tracks after Santa Anita, which is a racetrack in California, they faced a similar crisis. And this law seems to be having its intended effect where Churchill did, you know, eventually stop the meat, move the meat to a different place, uh, and, and hopefully we'll get to the bottom of things. Uh, Jasmine, I know that we've been following this. I didn't really know if it was super appropriate for a show, so it's a, a quick hit. But what do you think about Churchill shutting down? Um, is it a big deal? Is it going to matter in, in any kind of political way? Or do you have anything to say about it? Shutting down Churchill seems like a pretty big deal. It, you know, it's the track where the Kentucky Derby is held. Um, but I mean, it seems like the right thing to do because I mean, what's been happening in this meet and leading up to the Derby and since um, has been really bad. And, and I don't know enough about horses and horse racing to know what the problem is. Um, but it seems like we, we can't keep, going on with that happening and so um if it's if it's an issue with the track then they yeah. should be investigating um and hopefully you know ellis park can handle some of these larger races i know it's a much smaller track um but yeah, could yeah. be a could be a boon to the folks there in anderson you know who knows but uh, right yeah, yeah. It, it could definitely be a good thing or for henderson I, I think it, it's 
it's confusing as to whether that track is in Indiana or Kentucky. I don't know. But anyways, uh, that's where they're moving it to, and that's what's going on. So, yeah, I agree with you completely on what you just said. Okay, one other thing, a couple of other things. One thing is that nearly half of the United Methodist Churches in Kentucky have voted to split from their denomination. The split in the UMC has been years in coming, but the dam really broke this year. Um, you know, religion and politics are interesting combination. The, the split in denominations is, is a big deal here in Kentucky with the Methodist Church. Uh, there's a lot of people who are Methodists in Kentucky. It's, I think, the third largest denomination after Baptists and Catholics, and it is a big deal um, that this is happening. Uh, these churches are now going to form— uh, or at least join a more conservative Methodist kind of a denomination, I think is the, the plan that they have. Um, and, and that could have a real impact on some local communities, um, which, you know, were might have been like reined in a little bit in terms of some of their more um, conservative or more some of their more like, I don't know, yeah, I guess conservative stances on, on some of these issues by their their parent denomination, which technically own their land, uh, place their pastors and stuff. So this could actually have a pretty significant impact. And also, if you're a Methodist, it's like a huge, huge deal. You've been following it pretty closely. Um, Jasmine, I know you're not a Methodist, but did you pay any attention to this? Did you know this was happening? Do you have any uh, uh, opinion about what it might what it might uh, happen after this has been put in place? Oh, no, I I didn't know that this was happening. I you didn't see my notes today, and I didn't see yours. Um, <laughs> so no, I didn't know this was happening, and, and I, I'll just trust your opinion about it. Yeah, yeah, it it, it certainly is. Uh, the Kentucky Lantern had a really nice story about it. Um, it was pretty well researched. Um, but there's also a lot of coverage about the UMC splitting. The Courier had a, an, a more informative piece. I think it was less explanatory, but more informative. Um, okay, last thing. Until Freedom, which is the National Social Social Justice Organization, they announced a campaign opposing Daniel Cameron's bid for governor. Tamika Palmer, who is Breonna Taylor's mother, she joined the organization to launch the effort on Monday. Uh, Monday would have been Breonna Taylor's 30th birthday. So so, you know, I think that this is kind of important and kind of relevant because, you know, Andy Bashir isn't necessarily like the, the most, you know, progressive candidate who could be running for governor of Kentucky. Um, but at the same time, uh, I do think that this move illustrates how Daniel Cameron really drives opposition among people who are to Andy Bashir's left. Um, that like this, this character, this person is somebody that really isn't, is particularly disliked by uh, folks on the left um, because of his role in the Breonna Taylor campaign. Uh, do you think that this group making an entry into the, the governor's race, um, do you think that that's going to have an impact on the race? And what do you think about it in general? Yeah, I mean, I think something that's really important for Andy Bashir is a huge turnout in Lexington and Louisville. Um, and this could certainly help turnout in louisville like among more further left people um i think you said this when we when we talked about matchups um for the gubernatorial race that andy Bashir would probably rather stay away from mm -hmm. <laughs> you know talking about things like brianna taylor's murder and, and stand on his own record um, but I, I think someone else getting involved and in, in trying to advocate um, for from that perspective might be important. 
Yeah, I think it's important. I think it's also needed. Like, I do think it's important to, to for that part of Daniel Cameron's record to be aired, to be talked about, yeah. to be considered. Um, and yeah, I understand why Andy Bashir isn't necessarily thinking it's the most wise thing for him to do it politically. But I am really glad that somebody's doing it. Um, and yes, I do. I do agree with what you're saying about the about the political take there. So, yeah, those were the quick hits. Uh, sorry, I surprised you with a couple of those, Jasmine. But you you were quick on your feet. You were able to respond quickly and understand exactly what was going on. So always always good to talk to you about these kinds of things, Jasmine. All right. Uh, with all that said, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old KWAF pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a sporadic newsletter. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. We also have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we're part of the Dimcast network and the Ford Kentucky network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening and we will see you next week.